I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Welcome to episode 25 of Jack, a podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, May 21st, and I'm your host, Andy McCabe. Hey, Andy, I'm Allison Gill. It was a quiet week last week, and that was the news, uh, but the news picked up a little bit this week uh, in the now multiple investigations happening in the special counsel's office. First, Trump lawyer Tim Parlator, or I don't know if it's Parlator or Parlatory, has resigned from his position defending the documents case. And another of the Ocho Nostra has testified. And that's always good news. Um, and there's also news of another subpoena from the special counsel to the National Archives. We're going to discuss what they're looking for. We'll also take listener questions at the end. And as always, if you have questions for us, you can send them to the following email address. It is hello at MullerSheWrote.com. And don't forget to put Jack in the subject line. All right, let's talk all things parlator. <laughs> all right, Andrew. There's a lot of layers to this resignation. Um, first of all, we know that Epstein's been backbenched, and we know that Corcoran is off the team. So let's remind folks about Tim Parlator's involvement in the classified document situation. First, let's go back to some CNN reporting from March, right? A couple, like a month and a half ago. Sarah Murray reported, quote, Timothy Parlator, an attorney for the former president, said Thursday that he testified before a grand jury investigating classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago for several hours in December of 2022 about additional searches for classified documents at Trump properties. And when that reporting came out in March, CNN added that Parlator had appeared without being subpoenaed. Parlator told CNN, quote, I chose to go in there because I felt that it was a good opportunity as a trial lawyer for me to go in and to be able to speak directly to the grand jury and to explain to them what we did, to explain how we had complied with the subpoena and how there was no obstruction. Yeah. As far as I know, right? Just put that little caveat right at the end like Corcoran and Bob did. Uh, but, but Andrew, remember when Chief Judge at the time... Uh, Beryl Howell, uh, because now it's Chief Judge Jeb Boesberg, but at the time it was Beryl Howell. And she ordered Donald to conduct additional searches to ensure all remaining classified material was turned over. Uh, and then Parlator hired two private investigators, I put that in air quotes, to execute that search. And, and that search ended up finding additional classified material in a storage facility near Mar-a-Lago, remember? Yeah, that's right. And then DOJ filed a motion to get the names of those two investigators. And of course, Judge Howe ordered that the names be turned over. So once DOJ got those names, they subpoenaed the investigators and both later testified in front of the federal grand jury. So more from CNN back in March, quote, Parlator said he had provided the government with copies of reports his team wrote on each of the searches of the Trump properties. Prosecutors went over the reports with him in front of the grand jury, as well as details such as who conducted the searches, which properties were searched, and how the locations were chosen and what was found. 
The Trump attorney took issue with some of the questions prosecutors asked him during his roughly seven hour appearance on December 22nd. <laughs> Holy cow, that's a long one. Yeah, they, they in fact, they said they repeatedly tried to ask me about my conversations with President Trump, which is totally outside the scope of what I was there for. But now this week, Andrew, we have new reporting from Alan Foyer at The New York Times that Parlator has resigned from Trump's legal team. Uh, and in a brief interview on Wednesday with Parlator, um, he declined to discuss the specific reasons for his departure, but said it was not related to the merits of either inquiry, meaning either of the investigations that Jack Smith is conducting. Parlator said he informed Trump of his decision directly and that he left the legal team on good terms with the former president. And I think that's an important detail because it means he wasn't fired, right? Well, that's certainly what it suggests. It also sounds pretty rare in terms of how attorneys come and go from Mar-a-Lago. But we also learned that he actually was subpoenaed to appear back in December. So contrary to what we heard from him then, it apparently was not on his own terms or whatever. <laughs> I went in on my own and told them what I thought. Yeah. That seemed weird, didn't oh, it? Oh, come on. I mean, what good trial attorney wants to appear in front of his client's grand jury? I mean, that <laughs> never happens. That is not a thing. Okay. You know, imagine how this goes. Like uh, Parlator walks in and says, trust me, grand jurors, despite the evidence you have heard and will hear, my client is innocent. Like, is that super persuasive? I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. Yeah, no. So now Jim Trusty and John Rowley will continue to take the lead in representing Trump in both cases. Of course, we know there's more cases now, but you know, we're, we're talking about the, what they're referencing is January 6th and the documents case. That's right. Now, the parlator informed Trump's team on Monday that he anticipated withdrawing. So not only did he leave voluntarily or he resigned himself, and not only did he leave on good terms, but he anticipated it a couple days before it happened. And our friend Hugo Lowell at The Guardian reported that it was over a conflict between him and Epstein with that letter that Parlator sent to Congress that you and I talked about, the one where he asked Congress to tell the DOJ to stand down. And if you remember in that letter, Parlator threw up the defense that they just packed hastily and Donald had no idea those documents were in the boxes, which is, you know, the correct defense for someone like Biden or Pence, where, where their classified documents were. But then Donald said during his CNN town hall, no, I took them. They were mine. They're mine. <laughs> and I declassified them with my mind. And he tried to explain that just by, like, by the sheer nature of him moving the documents, they become declassified. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the infamous Hail Mary letter to Congress, please make these horrible prosecutors go away because there's no crime here. And did I mention there's no crime here? Parlator <laughs> lays out what is probably a pretty reasonable theory, or if not a, a solid defense. And then Trump comes right in behind him and completely cuts his legs out from underneath him and says <laughs> the one thing that, of course, you should not say. If your defense is, I didn't have anything to do with this. It was a clerical error. You know, the the uh, Packers put the wrong stuff in the wrong box. Um, not a good thing to then come out and say, it was mine. I could take them all. <laughs> well, yeah, because I guess what happened is Parlator didn't present that letter or clear it with trustee. Or Epstein, he just went to Trump directly with it. And Trump doesn't read anything. So he's like, not. whatever. And that, and then there was a big, you know, conflict. And so, you know, whether this resignation has to do with the conflict inside what now I've decided to call the blunder dome, which somebody... <laughs> 
somebody used to refer to Trump's legal team on social media. And now I can't unhear it. Yep. Um, whether it's that or whether it's, you know, resigning for legal reasons, we, we don't know. Uh, but, you know, because this is all coming from all sorts of different stories, different situations. But Parlator was also part of the team trying to assert executive privilege over and over and over again for all the witnesses, you know, including the Ocha right. Nostra, uh, without any success. Um, in fact, Nick Luna testified this week. That's another big piece of news. Somebody saw Nick Luna coming out of the grand jury. And that's now five. Five down. The- <laughs> five down. Three to go. Come on. <laughs> of the Ocha Nostra that have gone in. Only O'Brien, our favorite. Andy, Johnny McEntee, and Mark Meadows remain, and and that we know of. I don't know if I don't know that O'Brien, McEntee, or Meadows could have snuck in, but we don't know. Yeah. Um, And again, this may be about Parlator becoming a witness in the case, or it may be part of the infighting within the Trump legal team. What are What are your thoughts on this? It seems like most of the pundits kind of agree that, along with Epstein being backbenched, and along with Corcoran after they both had to testify. And now we found out he testified, Parlator did, uh, pursuant to a subpoena, that, you know, you can't be a trial lawyer for a client in a case that you're a possible witness in. That's so right. I, what are your thoughts on on what caused this? It sounds like it could be a whole, any number of reasons. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to keep track of or, 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 uh, speculate with any confidence about why lawyers come and go from Mar-a-Lago, right? I mean, this has been uh, literally like hand-to-hand mortal combat for lawyers. You got lawyers whose privilege with the client is being pierced and they're testifying in front of the grand jury. You got uh, you got Parlator who also testified, but allegedly on his own, be- uh, at his own uh, urging. And, and of course, now we realize maybe not so much. Um, you've got lawyers who are not officially working the case, but are weighing in on, you know, on um, in media appearances on issues of fact that are important in the case, um, like Alina Haba and others. So it is absolutely chaotic. The one thing and you- we know, Parlator like hates Joey Taco Pants. Like he's he was it, asked yeah. about him, and he was like, I, I have no comment on Takapina. Yeah. And how about Chris Keys? Like he seems to have just kind of evaporated from this whole crowd. Which, when you add all that stuff together, the one thing you can say with a fair amount of confidence is this is not a good sign for a former president whose liberty literally is about to be in jeopardy if he's indicted in these cases, which we we expect he probably will be. Um, it's just hard to imagine how such a high-profile client in an incredibly high-profile and unprecedented manner um, has had this sort of on-again, off-again parade of unlikely lawyers who seem to get involved, half of whom anyway, seem to get involved, do more trouble than good, and then end up getting shown the door or or running for it at their own uh, at their own discretion. Yeah. So... Well, we had a quiet week last week, and I said that that was the news because we don't see that like a huge round of subpoenas or anything. Um, We do have a new subpoena, but it's not a new subpoena. It went out in January. We're going to talk about it after the break. Uh, But, you know, we we still have the tail end of the Ocha Nostra to to come in and testify. And that really seems like about it. The only other news is that lawyers keep quitting. (laughs) Yeah. So I really feel like we're uh, getting toward the end of this. And, you know, you and I don't really cover the Fonnie Willis investigation down in Georgia, but there was breaking news today on Friday 
uh, as we record this episode, that she has narrowed down her window uh, when she sent a letter out to uh, law enforcement and the judge of the court, you know, the judge in the case that she's working on right now saying, clear your schedules for August 1st through August 18th. And, uh, you know, that we, we need to make sure security is at its best. And uh, we're all going to be working remotely uh, for that time period, you know, for security reasons. And so now it appears that it's going to be the first half of August when we might have some charging decisions, because before it was like the mid-July to September, and now it seems to be a little bit narrower of a time. But it's not unheard of with where we're at. And maybe you can help uh, steer me in the right direction here, because you know a lot more about the timing of these things and how it must look outside and what's really going on inside. Uh, But with seemingly most of the testimony done, we might see indictments or charging decisions from Jack Smith before Fonnie Willis goes. I think that that's entirely possible. It's impossible. You know, we can't sit here and say, in the Fonnie Willis case, great example, we can predict it's likely going to happen sometime in that two-week period because of the con- either the letter she sent to the judges in her courthouse saying, don't schedule anything during those two weeks. They're trying to keep the courthouse as empty as possible. And also the letter she sent to the law enforcement community a week or so ago, or that was reported on a week or so ago. We don't have those kind of uh, tells in the Jack Smith investigation. They've been incredibly disciplined about their control of uh, keeping their um, their movements and their machinations out of the press. So this shouldn't surprise us at all. But yeah, I think they are down to the very last pieces of this investigation. This, the subpoena that we're going to talk about uh, in just a minute, it, I think is consistent with that view, right? It's something that you do to kind of um, perfect a piece of that one particular piece of evidence that speaks to one specific fact or allegation. You're, this is lining your ducks up, get, getting everything in a row, making sure you have uh, all the pieces of probable cause that you're putting in front of uh, the grand jury ready to go. So, you know, there's really, other than the uh, the witnesses that we're looking for, who we admit could have been in and out without our knowledge at this point, it's hard to imagine that they have uh, a ton more work to do. I would expect to see something from them by the end of the summer. When you um, are kind of wrapped up with your testimony and your third and fourth and fifth and sixth rounds of subpoenas, and you've talked to everybody you wanted to talk to, and it's time to sit down and write your pros memo, your prosecution memo, which is what you hand in to the boss to say, here's what we think. Here's what we've put together uh, before you take it to a grand jury to seek an indictment, right? That's right. That's kind of the process there. Is the prosecution memo sort of created along the way, or is it something you wait to begin until after you've got all your evidence and ducks in a row, like what we're going to talk about in the second half of the show? Seems like a, like you said, a finishing touch. And then, like, how long does it take to prepare? I mean, I guess it depends on the scope of the case, but. I can't imagine it takes too long to prepare a prosecution memo and then have to go into the grand jury after that, right? You know, it's a bit of a prosecutor's call. You know, prosecutors can work in different ways, uh, especially on issues like this that are, are well within the prosecutor's discretion in terms of how they're going to run uh, run the case and the investigation. That said, this is a big case with a lot of witnesses, uh, many of whom are not like, you're not talking about surprise witnesses who's who've just shown up at the last minute. Um, 
And the Pross memo itself is really a roadmap to the entire prosecution. It is literally a statement of facts that lays out the background, how we got here. You'll have a pretty elaborate um, kind of a, a chronology of facts. And then it just lists the evidence supporting each crime that you are uh, investigating and could potentially be indicting on. So they are building the blocks of that foundation all along, right? As the investigation goes, it's strange for me to imagine that Jack Smith hasn't had some attorney on that team kind of drafting this thing out for the last, at least the last several months as they've been proceeding forward. Uh, they're going to look at that and and needle it and wordsmith it a thousand times because although the public will never see it, it is entirely an internal document. That's what goes to Merrick Garland before Jack Smith, as a special counsel, can seek that uh, indictment. He has to give Garland one final opportunity to say yay or nay. Yeah. And and Garland's already testified and said multiple times he will just say yay to, <laughs> to whatever <laughs> to whatever Jack Smith says. Yeah. But also, hey, look what happened to Fannie Willis on January 24th, five months ago. She said charges are imminent. And then she found out that a lawyer hadn't given an immunity deal to the fraudulent electors. And then she had to bring them all back in, give them immunity deals, get their testimony and do that. And, you know, that took that added probably months. three, yeah, three yeah, months, to, months to to this investigation. And now and now the charging decisions look like they're going to come in August instead of January. So or, you know, imminently after January. So things like that can pop up too. And, and I guess my last technical question about how this works is, after he's got all the witnesses, now does he go and start putting the screws to people to flip? Or do, has he been doing that the whole time? He's been doing that the whole time. Yeah, there's yeah. no question. He's been doing that the whole time. He wants those witnesses to testify in the grand jury. So you have to be, that's an iterative process. You're constantly developing information that you can use as leverage to convince people to cooperate, um, to contradict people's uh, stories. When you think that they're, they've given you information that's not true, you go out and vet that information. You find facts that contradict what they've told you. You bring them back in. You confront them with it. That's the way you kind of break witnesses down into, uh, into telling you uh, what actually happened. I'm quite sure that's been going on all along. You know, there's another process that they're going through right now, and that is kind of selectively determining what they're putting in front of the grand jury. You don't always put every single piece of evidence or every single witness in front of the grand jury. You certainly don't have to, right? The burden is only probable cause. Um, you know, in a case like this, a big, complicated, uh, highly significant case, high profile case, they probably err on the side of putting more rather than less. But in your day-to-day -day kind of uh, churn and burn prosecutions that go on in U.S. attorneys' offices and federal courthouses around the country every day, sometimes those grand jury uh, uh, submissions can be pretty bare bones. You know, if it's like narcotics case, simple fact pattern, um, you get the undercover in there, you enter the drugs with the report that says what they are, and um, maybe a couple of surveillance photos and you're good to go. This obviously is not that, but you have to make those calls on the fly. Yeah. And not to mention in the documents case, they're going to have to decide or they probably maybe already have decided what documents can be shown to the grand jury because they can't see classified information. And there's all those. What is it? The CIPA? Yep. Is that the those requirements? Yes, uh, that's and right. they have very, very knowledgeable uh, and uh, smart, well-trained uh, people who do that for a living. So they're but they're also 
have to do that consideration when you're talking about classified documents. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're close, All though. Right. I can feel it. They're close. <laughs> I think so, too. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and tell you about that subpoena. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. So huge news from Jamie Gangel, Zach Cohen, Evan Perez, and Paula Reed at CNN. This came out Thursday. The National Archives has informed the former guy that it is set to hand over to special counsel Jack Smith 16 records that show Trump and his top advisors had knowledge of the correct declassification process when he was president, before he left office, which is significant. Absolutely. So in a May 16 letter obtained by CNN, acting archivist Deborah Steidel Wall writes to Trump, quote, the 16 records in question all reflect communications involving close presidential advisors, some of them directed to you and personally, concerning whether, why, and how you should declassify certain classified records. So according to the letter, Trump tried to block the special counsel from accessing the 16 records by asserting a claim of, quote, constitutionally based privilege, not further identified. But in her letter, Wall rejects that claim, stating that the special counsel's office has represented that it is, quote, prepared to demonstrate with specificity to a court why it is likely that the 16 records contain evidence that would be important to the grand jury's investigation. <laughs> That's key right there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, for sure it is. 
for sure. Because that's like the whole U.S. v. Nixon thing, right? That that where we found out that if there's a crime being investigated, that trumps your privilege. That's right. That's right. So this is that that uh, uh, that variance, right? That we've talked about before. This is where congressional investigations sometimes die upon the rocks of, of these sorts of claims, but grand jury investigations do not. The courts have recognized for quite some time that the imperative of a criminal investigation trumps those sort of uh, uh, nondescript uh, efforts of privilege. Yeah. Now, when the archivist said the special counsel's office has represented that it's prepared to demonstrate with specificity to a court, does that mean that that evidence was given in the subpoena? Or is maybe they just made that representation in the subpoena to the National Archives? You know, I would suspect, A.G., that that reflects a ongoing discussion that NARA had with the special counsel's office in the process of of dealing with these documents. Right. They're going to they're going to kind of make sure that they're on on solid legal ground responding to the subpoena. And I would expect that the special counsel's office provided that sort of assurance to say, hey, look, this is uh, this is no kidding, absolutely necessary to an ongoing criminal grand jury investigation. And we're confident that we can prove that to a judge. Yeah. And and special counsel also told the archives that the evidence is not practically available from any other source. So that's also important because that's one of the factors when you have to determine uh, if you're a court that something needs to be handed over. So that is uh, that element is also met. Now, Trump's team could challenge this in court, according to a source, but claimed in the past the archives has handed over documents before the Trump team has had a chance to challenge the release in court. This has this happened a few times. Yeah. And Trump's legal team would not reveal what was in the 16 records, but the source said the former president's attempt to block the special counsel from accessing them is, quote, more of a strategic fight about constitutional and presidential protections rather than keeping evidence from the special counsel. And I call bullshit oh, on please. that. Oh, please. Oh, <laughs> please. Yeah. Yeah. He's litigating this because he cares so deeply about the state of the presidency uh, in the future. Right? right. Right. It's like it's like Pence saying, uh, hey, this is I'm doing it for the Constitution. I'm invoking a speech or debate clause for the Constitution. Yeah. It's like, no, you're not. No, dude. You're not. You want to be able to say you fought. That's um, absolutely right. Absolutely. Now, right. <laughs> the archivist in her letter said that the National Archives began searching for relevant records after receiving the subpoena from Jack Smith's team on January 23rd, 2023. So that's of note. This subpoena went out January 23rd, and we are hearing about it five months later. First time. Yep. And the archives found 104 unclassified documents that matched what Jack Smith asked for. And when notified that the National Archives intended to provide those documents to the grand jury, Trump's legal team raised privilege concerns over 81 of those records. The Biden White House was also notified, but told the National Archives that the incumbent president would not assert privilege to block these records from being shared with the grand jury, which Biden has done at every single every turn. single time, every single time. So anybody who's like, oh, Biden, you know, just wants to move forward. He doesn't want to you know, <laughs> investigate the president. He's interested in not he's not interested in justice. It's just absolutely not true. Yeah. Now, ultimately, the special counsel identified these 16 records in question as relevant. So after the all of 104, Trump said 81 are privileged. Biden was like, I'm not blind. I'm not, don't look at me. 
And then Jack Smith said, these 16 are the ones that we need. Now, talk a little bit more about what you had said earlier, Andrew, about how this seems like putting a cherry on the banana split of a, of a larger pool of evidence, because we're talking about Trump having knowledge that he couldn't declassify things with his mind, basically. Yeah. So this is beyond the phase of the investigation where you're you're you are collecting evidence to basically frame out a narrative of how criminal conduct may have taken place. Right. That's like the meat and potatoes of your investigation. This is kind of um, I'll say like investigation 2.0. This is not. Uh, so much trying to construct that narrative to figure out what happened. This is evidence that is going to allow the special counsel to respond to a likely Trump defense, right? Because you, you're trying to do that as well. Like you're thinking, okay, I have these little pieces that that I can put together and make a an argument that there's probable cause to believe this person committed whatever act. But if I do that, their likely defenses will be X, Y, and Z. So I want to then collect additional evidence that will allow me to counteract those defenses if they're raised. And that's what this is all about. This is about getting information that they can use if Trump comes in and says, no, you can't find me guilty for having uh, take improperly taken these records uh, because I declass, I think, I thought, I had effectively declassified them, right? So therefore, I didn't have the knowing and willful intent required to violate the statute. I thought I had declassified these adequately. If I haven't, well, that was just a mistake and I didn't have the intent. You can't convict me. This is Jack Smith lining up evidence that will counteract that defense, that story, because there's these communications will show, well, not really. Mr. President, because on these 16 occasions, you or one of your close advisors uh, discussed exactly how to declassify records. You knew how to effectively declassify records when it had to be done by, i.e. before you're no longer president. The process involved, the sort of communications that you have to issue, the the, the fact that the intelligence uh, entities that are involved in this work have to be officially informed so they can change the the records about what is actually classified and what is no longer classified. Um, so yeah, I think it's um, this is kind of next level uh, positioning for the special counsel team. Um, and that's not the kind of stuff that you'd see typically done at the beginning or the middle of an investigation. That stuff usually comes in closer towards the end. Yes, to how you would rebut a defense. And, you know, listening to this, it occurs to me that Jack Smith probably can already prove that Trump took them and knowingly possessed them, which throws out the whole parlator letter to That's right. Congress defense that, oh, we just swept them up and they were accidentally in there. Um, and another thing, too, we have to remember... Trump wrote a memo on January 19th, because the thing that reminded me of this was that you said, you know, you have to do this before you leave office. This is the process. We told you 16 times. Right. You signed an attestation saying that you understood it or, you know, whatever. Uh, and it reminded me that um, of that memo that Trump wrote on January 19th, the day before he left office, declassifying all sorts of things. And then Meadows 
writing a, a memo back saying no and give these and gave them back to the Department of Justice. And, and there was like a little battle going on there. And so now if Trump can, you know, does knowingly take these documents, knowing that they are not declassified now because he's been told how to declassify stuff. It's been told how long it takes. You've been told you have to have these certain OKs. I mean, I'm sure his reply to that reply is going to be, I'm the president, I can do what I want any minute of any day right. that I want to. And then they will have to lay out a case about how that's not the case. Uh, but I also think it goes toward intent. And this is this moves us away from the obstruction piece. It also tells me not only is he probably done with proving that he took them and he had knowing possession, but maybe he's he's kind of wrapping up the obstruction part too, because this goes more toward the espionage stuff, doesn't it? Well, it does. In the same way, um, there that standard for intent, which most people define as you have to prove that something was done knowingly and willfully, right? And th these, this sort of evidence allows you to puncture that quote unquote willful blindness approach. Like, well, no, I, I, I thought that I could, def I, I thought that I could declassify anything at any time. La 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 la. Ultimately, that becomes a question for the jury, right? And so in order to counteract that willful blindness position, you've got to put something in front of the jury to enable them to say, you know what? We don't believe him. He says he didn't know how to, to you know, he says he thought he could just wave his magic wand and declassify everything. But yet there's these 16 memos to him laying out exactly what needs to be done to, uh, to accomplish this effectively. Um, we just don't believe his denials. Right. Right along the same lines with the reports that he paid for by Simpatico and Berkeley research firms. Exactly. And uh, he uh, subpoenaed those in January, got them in January as well. Uh, again, sort of a response to a possible defense uh, for the fraudulent elector scheme or the big lie, perhaps the the, the wire fraud and the defunding uh, of donors. I mean, that, that is that, that's him to me is that similar kind of evidence where, you know, here you are saying that, you know, these can't be possibly declassified, uh, and you possessed them and took them anyway. And also, you know, same thing with, uh, Hey, you, you knew you lost the election and you knew there was no voter fraud. You paid $1.5 million to two research firms, aside from the litany of everyone else who told him that there was no yeah. fraud, including his own hand-picked North uh, Atlanta uh, U.S. attorney, uh, to Bill Barr, to Rosen, to, I mean, you name it. Eastman. Freaking Eastman, Eastman knew all this stuff was, was wrong. Everybody told him it was Rudy, wrong. Rudy, I mean, yeah. So, his campaign told him it was all, it was all BS. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. There seems to be piles and piles of intent evidence yeah. here. So that's, a, that's kind of what I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Again, just another, another sign that we're in the latter stages, if not the wrapping up stages of a lot of these investigations. Yeah, totally agree. All right, uh, very cool. We have listener questions next, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a few uh, this time. Again, if you have a listener question, you could send it to us at hello at mullersherote com. Don't forget to put Jack in the subject line. We will be right back with your questions. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, 
comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we are back. And this is the the part of the show we're just going to rip through a couple questions. We've been getting so many good questions this week, AG, that, that we're going to give it a little bit more time than we normally do. All right, so the first one comes from Ray. And Ray says, regarding episode 24, if it can be demonstrated that Trump was aware of the violence on the Capitol and was preventing or impeding the execution of the law of the United States, yet took no action to stop it for hours, would that be enough to make him a part of a seditious conspiracy? Didn't he enable the force used to hinder or delay uh, to take that effect? You know, Ray, that's a very common sense way of looking at exactly what happened on January 6th. But the problem, as we discussed last week, is that the the language of the statute requires that you conduct an um that you you know impede the execution of a law of the United States through force. And it, and the way it's written, it almost seems like the person who's been charged has to have actually applied that force themselves, or in the case of the conspiracy, has to at least have agreed to accomplish that goal with the use of force. And I think that just becomes an issue of proof for the prosecution. Uh, Leaves Trump a lot of wiggle room, essentially, to mount defenses about, well, I didn't know this was going to happen. You don't have me speaking directly to, let's say, one of these Proud Boys or one of these Oath Keepers telling them to incite a riot, telling them to take aggressive action and use force, telling them to amass a cache of guns in Virginia to be used uh, as a quick reaction force. So you've got to have proof to that that issue of the use of force and 
with the public record, just based on what we know from reporting, it's hard to imagine what they would point to there. Of course, in the Oath Keepers case, they had the weapons cache. And in the Proud Boys case, they had many, many, many text messages between the co-conspirators that uh, talked about use of force and uh, arming themselves and things like that. Yeah, I think the part of the law here, um, you know, looking at 18 U.S. Code 2384 uh, or by force prevent, hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States. Um, I, I think if. I think it would have to say or by negligence allow. Right, right. Uh, I think and, that's a good, it, good way of putting it. And it doesn't really say that. It says you have it's it's a positive. You have to for, you know by force do this thing. So I, unless there's a direct connection uh, to his working with you know via maybe conduits like Roger Stone right. and anybody at the Willard Hotel, leaders of these Proud Boys and Three Percenters and stuff, I think maybe incite inciting an insurrection might be a closer. Um, a closer charge and and because yeah. that force thing and yeah you know like you said that's why dominic pozzola uh was found not guilty of seditious conspiracy so i'm kind of i'm i'm with you on that andrew yep. yep okay next one this is a short one comes to us from heather a and heather says why would we have to pay for national security for trump if he's in jail that's a great question and one that i'm sure enrages many of our our uh listeners um, and I think I think what you mean by that is like, why would we have to pay for like Secret Service protection of Trump if he ends up uh, sentenced to serving some time in jail? Um, I'm not sure it's quite that simple, Heather. The service has the responsibility to protect the former president for the rest of his life, unless that any former president, this one or any other, at some point declines that protection. So they are kind of in first place to determine how to provide an acceptable level of protection to the president. But that what they do and how they do it is really very dependent on how and where that former president lives. And in this hypothetical, a former president who is confined uh, to an institution, uh, to a prison or some sort of federal um, incarceration, it wouldn't be the same sort of protection that Secret Service gives a free person, a free former president who's walking around, right? They're not going to have, they're not going to put a, a Secret Service uh, listening post in the cell next to Trump's. Um, they would likely uh, factor his unique security and safety requirements into the decision of where, you know, where they decide to to house him, essentially. So that's something that's done by the Bureau of Prisons and uh, the Department of Justice after somebody is convicted. And it factors in all kinds of things, your, your history of violence and um, uh, flight risk and everything else. Lots of uh, lots of personal kind of aspects go into that. And um, so the Secret Service protection and providing him some level of security that would keep him from getting injured um, while incarcerated would be a very unique uh, complicating factor in that in that math problem. I'm wondering if there's any other official in the United States who gets Secret Service protection that has gone to prison. That ha I don't even think we have an example. I can't. Uh, think and of th one. and this is uh, generally why I think that um, it would probably be you know closer to something like a home confinement uh, situation rather than 
prison sentence. Yeah, it's almost impossible for me to imagine him actually serving time. I know pe- some people are probably uh, punching their earphones or something at me saying that, but uh, it's it's just so off the charts, strange and hard to do to protect someone who is uh, incarcerated. And on top of that, you're talking about somebody who has no prior criminal convictions and certainly no prior- Oddly enough. Yeah, right. And certainly no prior violent convictions, convictions for crimes of violence. So from the get-go, he is a um, he would be considered to be a lower risk convict. Um, yeah. And both the DAs, Manhattan and Fulton County, because of the- I mean, the, the D.C. federal court is backed up, but not as backed up as uh, Georgia and, and New yeah. York courts are. And so those trials, even if the indictments come first, are likely to happen after um, uh, federal trials. But that could also change. So I don't think that those crimes, I don't think you would be convicted of those crimes to change any calculus. And, you know, in the in the sentencing from the the federal indictments or convictions that he may uh, receive. So, yeah. My yep. thoughts. Okay. All right. We, we forge on to our next, uh, it's actually two questions from one person. This is These both come from Michael B. Um, he says, feel free to pick one, but I, get, I think we can cover both pretty quickly. Um, I'll start with the second one first. Uh, this is number two question says, it seems as though intent may be a part of Trump's defense in both the January 6th and documents cases. But if Trump does not testify, and how could he possibly... How does he offer that kind of defense? So it's a really good question, um, Michael. I think if Trump, I mean, the, the idea of Trump testifying is so uh, <laughs> such a head-splitting <laughs> uh, um, issue, and I'm sure at some point we'll spend entire episodes going back and forth on will he or won't he, and if he does, how should it happen, and how big of a disaster will it be, because it's hard to imagine it. Uh, turning out any other way. But nevertheless, if he does not testify, he would try to get evidence of his intent entered through other people who uh, observed him taking particular actions or not taking particular actions, Uh, people who could relate conversations they had with him that he thinks, uh, you know, shed light on his... um, let's say, honestly held belief in the big lie, because that's kind of one of the things that he would likely be trying to kind of hang his hat on. Now, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of issues that those sort of witnesses raise. If it is a conversation with Trump that someone's trying to get in, that would typically be barred by the rules against hearsay, although there are many exceptions to hearsay. So a lot of that would depend on uh, the exact circumstances of the conversation and the witness. He could also try to enter documents in to get those same sort of ideas or positions in the record. So in other words, if let's say, uh, let's say good old Johnny McEntee sent him a crackerjack bit of legal analysis on a self-drafted memo saying, you're good, Mr. President, I don't think any of this stuff is illegal, like he might try to get that, uh, that document in through the testimony of Johnny McEntee. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. all kinds of different ways that he might try to get evidence of intent in without testifying personally. Yeah. And there's also opening statements and closing arguments. You know, the yeah. the uh, Trump's attorney could come in and say, you know, uh, we intend to prove uh, that uh, Donald Trump had no knowledge that these classified documents were packed. You'll hear testimony from 
Jane Doe, who was there packing the documents and never saw Trump come in once. You'll hear testimony from, you know. So I, I, they could set that up in, in the opening statements and then, of course, try to hammer that home again in the closing arguments at some point. Uh, but yeah, documents and testimony. But what's going to be really fascinating to see, and I'm jumping way ahead here, but is the Department of Justice's uh, motions in limine, what they, which is what they argue cannot be entered as evidence and why it cannot be entered as evidence from Trump's side. It'll be really fascinating to Absolutely. see those documents. Absolutely. All right. Here's here's Michael's uh, first question. I'll call it his other question. Michael says, you've talked about DOJ having a final meeting where the target's lawyer gets to convince DOJ not to indict. How do these meetings work? Does DOJ present evidence and then allow the lawyer to rebut? Um, okay, so a couple of things on that. First of all- Can I can I just tell you what my guess is? Yeah, like, yeah. Because yeah. I have it in my head, right? Yeah. I've got it in my, my Perry Mason head. Uh, I figure like the DOJ is like, hey, come on up. Come on down. You're the next contestant on. Tell us why we shouldn't indict your client. And then they come in and the DOJ is just like, what do you got? And then they present their case and the DOJ says, thanks, we'll take it under consideration. That's kind of how I feel that it goes. That's exactly how it goes. Yes! That's exactly how it goes. <laughs> so with maybe a couple of little, uh, little fine points here. First of all, I've absolutely no right to have this meeting ever at all, period, right? This is not something that is preserved in policy and certainly it's not law. Um, and so the vast, vast majority of federal cases uh, or defendants in federal cases never get this opportunity. You typically only see it in, I'm going to say, white collar cases, right? Public corruption cases where the defendants are, you know, big time, you know, big name people. Um, and there are major kind of public issues intertwined into the potential prosecution. You also see it a lot in corporate cases, right? Uh, corporations who are are being held accountable under, you know, name your your statute will come in and and try to argue that uh, that the criminal resolution of something like that is not appropriate or what have you. Um, most people never get the chance. Um, I can tell you from my own personal experience and the. Um, baseless, fruitless two-year criminal investigation that uh, they conducted of me after I left the FBI, we asked for that opportunity. And we we kind of started that process by just talking to the line prosecutors and saying, hey, we want to come in, the lawyers, and we want to have an opportunity to tell you why we think that you're really not pursuing a valid case here. There is no case and there are facts and reasons that you should understand before you go forward. And having done that without success, then we talked to their supervisors in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And having done that without success, then we said, well, we want an audience with the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General. I think ultimately we only spoke to the Deputy Attorney General. But it's basically the conversation goes exactly as you described it. It's your chance for your lawyers to go in and lay out why they think this prosecution should not go forward. And DOJ sits there, they listen, they ask very few questions, and then they say, thanks very much for coming. We'll let you know what we decide to do. And that's how that's how it goes. And then how do you generally, if you're a high profile, hear that you're going to be indicted? Because we know there's a target letter. Uh, we know that some folks, some very privileged or higher profile or white collar criminal folks get these meetings or the chance to come in. Uh, but then once you, you're done with that, do you just 
I, I, I'm assuming DOJ just calls your lawyer and says, we're unsealing an indictment today or something to that effect. I'm trying to remember in my own situation, I think they ultimately said, uh, we're going to leave it to the discretion of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Like in other but words, you were never indicted. You were, ne- you were never, never indicted. indicted. So. I was never indicted. And the, and the, the U.S. Attorney's Office had told us they were going to present it to a grand jury. So but then, yeah, I'm just wondering about when an indictment, if an indictment happens. Yeah. So what they told me was <laughs> the was the uh, frustrating and mildly insulting. If you are ever indicted, we will let you know. Like, of course you will, <laughs> because like you just you don't have have an indictment just lay around out there, and you never inform the person that's been indicted. Typically, they get arrested or they surrender, but. So that's that's how they left us for months and months and months, even after the grand jury came in and, uh, well, they called an expired grand jury back for the purpose of voting, and that grand jury did not return an indictment. So I've never been indicted or charged. Um, da, da, da. After that point, <laughs> they let it continue for another, like, I don't know. Yeah, that old no news is good Six news, months Andy. or something. And oh, we kept great. calling Thanks. and saying, what's up? What's up? And uh... Barr did that to Joffe, too. Durham did that to Joffe, too, yeah. when he was going to testify in the Sussman case. And he's like, I don't know if I could testify. I've been t- threatened with a possible indictment, but nobody will tell me what's going on. And, yeah. you know, they tried to get his testimony. Um, uh, you know, it was it's just that's that's their way, I guess. Yeah, they play a lot of hardball. But I would expect that in this situation, um, I fully expect Trump's lawyers to take advantage or to, to re, I should say, to request those opportunities to go in and talk to the prosecutors. I think it's possible that they would just ignore Jack Smith and just want to make their appeal direct to the attorney general, thinking like everyone beneath the attorney general is beneath them, you know, one of those sort of power play sort of things. But we'll see. Um, either way, they'll they'll try. It's ultimately it's the best result, right? If you're a defense attorney, the best result you can possibly get is that your client doesn't actually get charged with a crime. Uh, so they'll yeah. take a shot at it. Yeah, I mean, you might as well. All right. Uh, is that our last question? I think that is. I think that's awesome. it for the week. Well, thanks, everybody, for sending your questions in. Again, you could send them to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Put Jack in the subject line. It has been a heck of a week. Very interested to see what happens next week. As always. As always. <laughs> All right. It's been really great to see you, Andy. Everybody, I've been Allison Gill. Thanks, AG. Great talking to you as well. And uh, talk again next week. I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. 
an Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.